0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we talk about myth a lot. We talk about mythology. Either you know, sometimes it's directly tied into a topic, sometimes it's just kind of the, the icing on the cake,
1: you know? Yeah, you'll hear us often refer to mythos a lot, mm-hmm. like in the background, especially like if we bring up topics like I don't know, pop culture, uh HP Lovecraft type stuff that we we talk about often. So we're applying both myth as like the large general sense of the the term, and then mythos as like these sort of like fictional shared universes with histories to them, right? Yeah.
0: So it's it's something we're always talking about. So it seemed fitting to do an episode where we say, hey, let's talk just a little bit about mythology. Now, don't worry, we're not going to attempt to do a like complete overall yeah. of world myth cycles. What we are hoping to do here is to... Uh, to provide you some of the basic tools to to roll through some of the different ways that we look at myth, the different ways that we dissect myth and understand what they mean to us and what the power of myth really is.
1: Yeah, this is like very much like a bare bones intro. And I imagine that if there are people out there who've done any kind of cultural or anthropological studies of myth before, you're going to say, oh, but what about this detail or what about this thing that you missed? and you know, there was only so much that we could fit into a one hour episode. Right. And likewise, when it comes to examples, we're going to
0: we're going to not we're probably not going to use a lot of examples in yeah. here. But we are going to end up using some of the the, the basic Greek uh, examples that most of our listeners are going to be familiar with. This is not in a, by any means uh, intended to slight any of the fascinating cultures out there but we're probably going to draw cards from the deck that most people are familiar with and mm-hmm. probably some cards from the decks that we've uh, you know built ourselves out of things that interest us.
1: Yeah, in particular like I should probably just state this up front like I uh, if you've listened to the show before you know that I'm a comic book nerd, mm-hmm. you know that I uh, like superheroes and have done research on superheroes in the past, in particular like the research I did when I was at a university was about mythology, rhetoric, and Captain America, <laughs> ironically, because that Captain America movie just came out. Um, and so, yeah, I have a lot of like superhero type examples or pop culture examples that'll probably come to mind as we're talking about this, but also I'm going to try to stay on target.
0: Yeah. Likewise, I've been reading a lot of Chinese mythology recently. And so some of my examples are going to draw from that just because it's fresh on my mind. Uh, but all of it is going to be intended to be, to provide you with the tools to, to go through these different ways of looking at myth and, uh, and, you know, provide something that that the listeners of the show can take with them as we uh, explore other mythologies even uh, as a tangent in the future, so
1: I have a challenge for us and a challenge for you, the listener, as well as we proceed um let's also consider right this is a science podcast, and as we've been we've been we've been sort of inching our way towards this over the last i don't know two or three months with mm-hmm. episodes like wicked problems and cargo cult science and things like that, but let's consider. Is it possible that some form of science is used today as mythology for our present culture? Because I think there's something that there might be something there. Yeah. Uh, And if so, how is it? And then, just for funsies. Who are our scientific deities? Uh, you know, Robert and I have joked many times before on the show about how, like, we're putting together, we're slowly putting together a psychedelic Avengers of all <laughs> these psychedelic scientists that we talk about on the show. But uh in general, like, I feel like there are some scientists, when you refer to them, they're referred to with the reverence that people used to refer to mm-hmm. Zeus or yeah. Thor with, right? It's like, Carl Sagan can do no wrong, or Einstein, you know? Well, they these are legendary Individuals in science, yeah. And,
0: uh, we'll get into the the connections between myth and legend uh, here as we roll. Mm-hmm. All right, so we'll keep that in mind. But let's hit it. All right, so let's start with the basics. Uh, just the word mythology. Uh, what is it? What does it come from? Well, myth and ology, myth and logos. Uh, myth being the Proto-Indo-European root mu is involved here, as in to okay. murmur. And mm. uh, from this, we get the Greek
1: mythos, meaning word or story. So this is going to be very important because as we go through this, you're going to see that, you know, and, and this sounds like a no-duh type thing, but there's an inherent connection between myth, mythology, and human language. Mm-hmm. and how that defines both culture and how we understand the world. Right. So uh, of course it would be named after murmuring and words. All right, so that's the word mythology, and certainly I think when most,
0: when when a lot of us hear the word mythology, the first thing that enters your mind is maybe just a, you know, a quick glance at, at the Greek pantheon. Yeah, I uh, think of
1: like a uh, um, Clash of the Titans.
0: Yeah, like old old god stories that mm-hmm. have a very human aspect to them, um, and and it's one of those things that it makes it difficult then to talk about myth in other areas, such as like for instance, in talking about Christianity, yeah, to talk about myth.
1: Some people hear
0: you say myth and they take it as an insult because they think, oh, myth is a thing that's not true and that is
1: just mildly amusing in big budget sandals movies. Exactly. Exactly. And that's something I think we should try to dispel today, too, is like that myth is is larger than just these ideas. We think of them today as being fictionalized stories. Right. Mm -hmm. But to the Greeks and the Romans that worshiped those gods, they were just as real to them as. Uh Einstein and Carl Sagan are to us. Yeah. And it and mythology, as
0: we'll discuss here, is a powerful force. Mm-hmm. And even though you might you might think of uh Greek gods and whatever is just you know mere uh, window dressing as just something that's just aesthetically pleasing, we are all living in the shadows of mythology. Yeah. And yet at the same time the human experience casts the shadow of mythology. So uh it's something uh, to keep in very mind. Very nice. As we go. Keep
1: that word shadow in mind for when we get to good old Carl Jung. Oh yes. All right, so
0: Under this heading, though, is there anything that we can agree upon that's kind of universally (laughs) considered, yeah, that's what a myth is? Yeah. Generally speaking, about the only thing we can everyone agrees on is that mythologies uh, are stories. They're narratives. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of disagreement on whether those narratives are inherently sacred, uh, you know, which is to say, do they involve gods and the supernatural? Can you have a myth that doesn't involve a god or godlike being? Well, that's an issue of discussion.
1: Yeah. And, and another thing to consider here, uh, this is from uh, just the basic definition in the Salem press encyclopedia is that myths are stories, beliefs, fables, legends, whatever you want to call them. We're going to sort of slice that pie up a little bit later, but they reflect the culture of the people who write and listen to them. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and what they're often trying to do is provide explanations for how the world works. Ironic because we, are working for how stuff works. Yeah. This is a How Stuff Works podcast. So uh you know while we provide explanations for how stuff works, uh the old way of doing so was to say, well, the reason why uh, that lightning struck that tree over there was because Zeus was angry, right? Something like along those lines. Uh, so for example It was natural phenomena that human beings didn't quite understand yet. And so they told stories of heroes that were up against good and evil stakes to explain those things. So they explain our place in the world, or at least they try to right? uh, to us. It's, it's that old, like sort of very meta thing of like the stories are us looking at ourselves. Like fiction mythology is just like, uh, Us creating an eyeball that's looking right back at ourselves and then trying to explain ourselves to us, which is is a weird thing to think about. Um, But it's everything from creation myths like, well, how'd the world start? How How why am I here? Who rules the world? What's the afterlife like? Like all of that stuff stems from mythology. And there's so many shared similar themes. We're going to see that throughout all of the things we talk about today from virgin births to great floods. Uh, they're constantly being reinvented and passed down. And I would argue, uh, even into today's, you know, uh, huge popular culture epics of whether it's your superhero movies or your Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or whatever, we see these played out in similar ways there. Uh, anthropologists and cultural critics have been trying to trace these connections for centuries. And we're going to talk about some some like key points, I would say, in the last what, like two hundred years of uh, mythological study, but it's complicated, uh, and nobody has like a singular answer. So I, I, I kind of want to uh, dispel that right away. Like, there's no, this is how it is. Right there, uh, there are certainly interpretations
0: that are more popular. Uh, for instance, the etiological explanation that you just uh mentioned the idea that myths are about explaining what the world is and how the world works yeah like that is one that a lot of views say yeah that that is one of the the powers of myth that's one of the reasons for myth but um there are a number of different ways to look at it and a number of these different ways to look at them are tied to specific um uh specific um areas of study specific um uh academic approaches
1: yeah, and, like, it's easy to trace that back to, like, very simple things that we feel like we have a grasp on now, like the changing of the seasons or something like that, yeah. right? But at the time, it was explained through mythology.
0: All right. Uh, before we roll into some of the um, views on mythology, let's take a, a few minutes just to talk about the formal features of prose narrative as they relate to myth, legend, and folklore. Because these are three terms that are often used interchangeably, but they They really kind of
1: refer to different things, um, yeah, and I think too, like uh we should point out that the distinctions that we're about to give come from a book on Chinese mythology by is it Ann Burrell I believe so, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a book I've picked up recently,
0: and uh, in addition to being just a great exploration of Chinese mythology it has a wonderful uh, some wonderful introductory material that summarizes some some key stuff about um, um mythology.
1: Yeah, and it, it this is great stuff, but it's also like I, I think that we should also question some of the definitions too as we go. Yeah, forward, I mean right? that's the like, that's
0: the thing when you um like something to keep in mind with any any of this when we're talking about mythology, yeah. like mythology is almost a it it exists outside of our attempts to neatly yeah. categorize it. Yeah, and it's so there's totally a danger fluid. in throwing too many classifications at it. Mhm. But, but I do, t- I tend to like this idea of just sort of breaking it up. So. Yeah, it's nice. Myth, legend, and folk tale. Uh, there's, there's a table in this book, uh, that, uh, that lays it out in terms of like, what's the conventional opening? Can you tell this story after dark? Uh, is this scene as a fact or a fiction? What's the setting like? The attitude? The principal character? So I'm not going to roll through the whole list, but for instance, in a myth, you're, t- you're generally talking about a non-human character. Mm-hmm. A legend is going to be more of a human character. And then a folktale can be either one. Um, a myth definitely has a sacred feel to it. You know, the, the gods, uh, superhumans, uh, godlike entities. Legend can be either sacred or secular, and then a folktale tends to be secular. Uh, in terms of setting, uh, myth and legend are just sometime in some place where folktales are timeless. Uh, as far as belief goes, myth and legend are essentially facts. And that's kind of a that's, mm. that's a, a problematic term. But but we'll uh, yeah, let's address that in a second. You go. On. Yeah. But but the myth and the legend, as it is told, it is real in some way, shape or form. Whereas a folktale is just pure fiction. Like nobody is actually believing. Right. You know, in the boogeyman.
1: Nobody thinks Johnny Appleseed. Right. Actually walked all across exactly. the country with Appleseeds. Yeah.
0: So so these are just some of the ideas to keep in mind to flesh this out a little bit. Let's roll through some examples okay. uh, first of just straight up myths. So I think the the Greek examples that come to mind most yeah. easily, are probably, you know, stuff having to do with the origin of the
1: universe, so the fall of the Titans, the rise of the gods, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like the go to. I think yeah. most of us. Uh, and it's interesting. I wonder why that's the one like. Uh, mythological pantheon that especially in Western culture we still like really gravitate to. But I, I loved reading stories about yeah. that and Norse mythology to a certain extent when I was a kid. Too. Well,
0: those tales have been, they've been told and retold so many times as part of Western literature mm-hmm. that, that they're, that they've just been carried and held on a pedestal this whole time. One yeah. of the interesting things about looking at Chinese mythology is that you don't see that case. There's not yeah. a, there's not a Homer that is uh that is retelling these things uh, necessarily so you have the, you have less of a tradition of the mythology being upheld uh by the scholars uh, throughout the ages um, in the christian world you have adam and eve the whole you know garden of eden the, the origins of man the origins of sin um, certainly classifies as as mythology mm. Um elsewhere in the world, um, in Chinese mythology, for instance, there's a uh, an archer by the name of uh, Yi, and uh, he shoots down the extra nine suns in the sky
1: so that the world's not yeah, too hot. We don't need so many suns. Yeah. So this is a good segue into me talking about superheroes for a second, because you just wrote a fantastic piece on Chinese mythology connecting to the world of superheroes. Oh, yes. Uh, and uh, in particular, you wrote about a recent DC Comics a uh, team called the great 10 that were based on Chinese mythology. so listeners, I highly recommend uh, you go uh, and find that piece it's on com. right yeah yeah, uh, yeah and and go take a read because uh, Robert does a great job with that but I will segue from that from Chinese myth into superheroes and into Western superheroes I will make the argument throughout this episode. That, uh, especially like our big budget, uh, DC comics, Marvel comics, superheroes are archetypes for myth in the same way as like the Greek gods were. Right. So real quick, like think of like pretty much every myth has like some kind of solar deity, right? Well, that's Superman. Yeah. Uh, They've always got an earth mother. It's Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman was made of clay in one of her origin stories. You've got the death slash underworld deity. Batman, right? Okay, yeah. The darker uh, figure. Yeah. yeah. And then there's always like the trickster, the Joker. Mm-hmm. So like, it's interesting, like, and I'll, I'll keep coming back to this. Uh, but there are like pair ups, like you can apply these models of these archetypes, uh, across both, you know, whether it's thousands of years old Greek, Roman p- pantheons or modern day like comic books or even like I'm kind of wondering with this, this example of science, like who's our science Zeus? Yeah. Is it Nikola Tesla? Hmm. Or Ben Franklin? It's not I don't think it's Ben Franklin. <laughs> yeah, so but you know, there's things like that to consider. Uh-huh. Anyways, so that's that's my spiel about comics uh to start off with and I'll be bring, no, I think bringing a, it in and That's
0: out. A, yeah, an important fact to make because much like the gods, what well, you walk around, say, the desks in an office space and you see the action figures on people's desks, totally. right? Totally. In many cases mm-hmm. they are superheroes or superhero characters what are they but the 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 avatars uh, for little gods the the
1: amulets the protective presence yeah and i would I, you know i'd also point out too that like it in our sort of breakdown of of how myth legend and folk tales work out right like we said myth is considered to be fact well nobody actually considers you know superman to be fact right nobody mm-hmm. thinks that he's a real person or at least I, most people don't uh <laughs> and but the caveat being there is that there is such an intense devotion to the canon that's within these uh, myth- myth- mythologies of whatever shared universe it is, whether it's Star Wars or Marvel or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. That there's constant arguments about what is true and what is not within the canon. Uh, it doesn't necessarily explain how the world works to us, but it represents how we think it works and how we want it to work, uh, and it represents our ideologies, too.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, if Superman, even though no one is going to... It gets into the whole idea of hyper-real uh, religions mm-hmm. uh that we covered in a previous episode. Yeah, absolutely. In that this thing that is certainly fictional still takes on mythological, even religious uh power to the individual, to large groups of people. So, if anyone out there is thinking, oh, you mentioned Superman and Adam and Eve in the same breath, that it is insulting or whatever. Um, I encourage you not to take it that way and to listen yeah. to the rest of the podcast as we explore the power of myth. And I think you'll I would see why that I would also say comparison. watch
1: the last two Superman movies very carefully because there's a lot of Christ imagery in there. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of yeah him in cross like poses, him being backlit by the sun in the same way that Jesus is backlit in certain paintings. Huh. Yeah, there's a lot of that stuff going oh, cool. on. All right, so on to legends. Uh as we discussed,
0: you know, it might be sacred, might be secular, but you have more of a human character. There's more of a grounding in reality, um though it, there are still mythic elements to it. So, in the Greek world, the example that came to my mind is Alexander the Great. Right. A legendary figure, but definitely a real guy that existed yeah. with some possible uh fiction, you know, springing off on the edges. Right.
1: Yeah, it still allows for big budget movies to be made about him. Right. And
0: it's and it's more um It's not in like pure mythic time, like it's uh, it's it's more relatable to the present. Likewise, in the Christian uh, in Christian traditions, you have various martyrs. You could maybe even make a an argument for some of the apostles. These are definite Mm -hmm. historical figures, yes, saints. When
1: when we talked about stigmata on the show before, some of those guys
0: that is definitely an example of of Christian legend. Yeah, and then elsewhere in the uh, in the world, uh, one example from Chinese history is the Yellow Emperor. Uh, who reigned from um, uh 2698 to uh uh 2598 BCE definitely a real ruler but mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh additional information he's taken on an extremely legendary status.
1: Yeah, my experience um living in Southeast Asia as a kid too is that uh, Chinese mythology and legend is popularized in pop culture and movies and television, just as much as like our Alexander the Greats or superheroes or Greek gods are. Um, are you familiar with the once upon a time in China series? Um Yeah. Well, I've never seen it, but I'm familiar with it. It's this uh, like martial arts, wuxia, uh series of movies starring Jet Li. And it's ostensibly about the history uh, of China mm-hmm. at the time, although there's a lot of argument about whether or not it's been influenced by the state or not. And uh. it's, it's sort of like a revisionist history, but it, it reminds me of things like this or like uh, a lot of Jet Li movies. Like what's that other one? A uh, hero. Is that what it's called? Anyway, yeah. the Wu Xia movies in general tend to play around with these legends. They're like historical figures that they make larger than life.
0: And then finally we have folklore and, uh, certainly like in the Greek tradition, they have, they have their boogeyman just as anybody else has a boogeyman. I believe it's called the, uh, Babalos. And then you could maybe make an argument that, uh, Aesop's fables count as Mm -hmm. folklore. You know, I mean, nobody. I mean, they're almost like extreme folklore. Like nobody's believing one of these stories about right. um, these interactions between animals. About Briar Rabbit. Yeah, but they are. But they still they carry weight. Is <laughs> that a? No, that is okay. Not, <laughs> not, not <laughs> um, Christian tradition. You have an, inherited pagan folk tales. You have stuff mm-hmm. about
1: witches. There's a lot of uh, satanic material.
0: panic. Yeah, and that's an interesting example where fable can mm-hmm. uh, become something else. Starts to define the world for us in yeah. a way
1: that isn't necessarily accurate. Yeah.
0: And then elsewhere in the world, what, you have vampires, you have fox spirits, beastmen, all in that manner of, uh, yeah. of, uh, supernatural entity that is, it's just a folktale. You know, it's like, it, it doesn't have legendary or mythic status.
1: So let's talk about the, like, how sacred some of this stuff has to be, right? Like, again, like, sticking to, uh, that, that table of, of splitting up myth, legend, and folklore. Well, it says right here, myths are always sacred. So how sacred are they? Well, I think
0: it's definitely hard to find examples of older myths that are that are secular, like yeah. you know, most mythology, as, as we experience it, is going to be sacred. But the comic mm-hmm. book examples really bring to mind an ex- a, a possible example
1: of, of of
0: secular mythology,
1: you know, in a yeah. kind of hyper real uh, fashion. So, um, a, interesting side note here, often mentioned writer on the show, Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're, you've ever read his run on the justice league of America, no, I have but, not. uh, he's given many interviews where he said, well, his version of writing the justice league was he saw it as, Oh, this is the mythological pantheon of our times. And he set it up so that his roster of who was on the team, uh, lined up archetypically with all of the Greek and Roman gods, huh. uh, and he, he had like this uh, infamous breakdown of how that all worked out and how he chose who would be who, uh, on on the team. Like, you know, you have your usuals like Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, but then when you add somebody like Plastic Man, like why is he there? And huh. Morrison says, "Well, everybody needs a Dionysius."
0: Huh, Interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course Morrison also responsible for uh, bringing the, the great, great Ten. ten. Yeah. yeah. All
0: right, so. Here's the thing with with myth as we're discussing it now. And and again, this gets down to the problems of classifying it. Myth is like a narrative mold that grows over our lives and it grows over everything from big cosmological questions to what's on the dinner table. So you can think of it as, as mold growing over a statue of a man or a woman. And that body is kind of a physical symbology for our concerns. Uh, or if you're so inclined, you can think of chakras on a figure. OK, mm. so myth grows over the heart and the mind, but it goes over all the senses of the head. It grows over the sex organs, the breasts, the gut. It covers uh, the dreadful scars of battle and the ever humorous buttocks. Uh, and is the butt sacred or secular? Uh, humans will always disagree on that one. But but myth is ultimately polyfunctional. So it grows everywhere. It takes on various meanings, and that's not just the nature of of myth as as a whole. From a you know, from a, as just in general, I mean, we're talking about individual tales uh, that mean a host of different things. Uh, the human experience exists again as the shadow of myth, but it also casts the very shadow. So I think yeah. polyfunctional is a good. Um, Description to keep in mind as we talk about all of these, because the more you try and pin it down and say, oh, well, this this myth is about your obsession with your mother. Right. That is to limit the power of mythology to this one yeah. specific thing when it really is more amorphous than
1: that. And that's what we see in a lot of the uh, attempts and conflicts over what myth means over the last, you know, hundred, two hundred years of uh Academic inquiry, I guess, is sort of like attempts to constrain it and then attempts to balloon it back outwards again.
0: Yeah, because you end up with, say, a psychologist or an anthropologist or, or an historian. They're coming in, they're taking their discipline, applying mm-hmm. it to mythology, and it's going to be sort of
1: the vision of mythology that fits to their discipline. Well, and the funny thing is, too, is like, they're human beings and they're just as yeah. subject to myth as the rest of us and they want their answer to be the one answer. Yeah. Right. Like they all think like young thought, like his answer was the answer. And yeah. so did, I don't know, Roland Bart or, uh, uh, you know, uh, Claude Lee Strauss, whoever, like the, all these people we're going to talk about today, they wanted to be, be the ones with the answer in just the same way as the people who, uh talked about Zeus as being responsible for storms. Yeah. Wanted that to be the one true answer. So we have a,
0: a lot of different
1: interpretations.
0: And uh, one individual, we'll come back uh, around to him at the very end, but there is a religious study scholar and mythologist, William G. Dottie, uh, born 1939, he's still ar- around, but he's uh, retired, I understand. He identified no f- fewer than 50 definitions of myth, and this was in the 1980s. Mm, yeah. And again, this is due to just all the anthropologists, psychologists, religious uh, studies, uh, uh, individuals, uh, the- the- theologians, etc., chiming in on mythology. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will roll through some of these big ideas uh, concerning the nature and power of myth. Okay, so here we go. Let's uh, first talk about uh, sort of this 19th century universalistic uh, theory approach. One of the key individuals here, Frederick Max Mueller, 1823 through 1900, generally known just as Max Mueller, a German-born English philologist and orientalist, as the uh, the term uh, of the uh, was used at yeah, the time. Yeah, we, we probably wouldn't call him that now. Yeah, not not today. But it's a uh, it's it's a good description to keep in mind in terms of the attitudes towards. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 you know, uh, other people's belief systems and and mythological uh, roots. He argued that over time, humans lost the original meanings of words such as sun, moon, thunderstorms. You know, the the basic terms we use to describe the the cycle of things in the world around us. Planets. Yeah, and that we gradually misunderstood them as myth figures and incorporated them into superstitious
1: and religious worldviews. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's no coincidence that we named all of our planets after gods. Right. Yeah. Uh. In fact, like, uh, our solar system has its own sort of pantheon of uh characters and archetypes as well. That uh, there you go again. Science mm-hmm. application of science to myth. Uh. Yeah. So with Mueller's in particular, disease of language thing, this is something we're going to see come up over and over again. That language is like the culprit of myth. It's where it all originates. Right. Like if we were, uh uh without language speaking animals feral children for instance uh-huh. uh feral children would maybe not need mythology right any more than like a squirrel would right uh and it goes a long way towards understanding again human cultural communication all our differences and our similarities uh and especially how we other uh other people so i'm talking about capital o other okay <laughs> uh and how we understand the world in general, right, so uh Mueller seems to think more about nature as being personified as supernatural characters, right, yeah, but he's also talking about language as being the 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 step that leads us there right and
0: i th- I think this is a great example to c- kick off with because certainly if you took this as the only explanation for myth that would be a very limited understanding of mythology yeah. uh but you can I can certainly see where this would be a part of the overall energy of myth as it exists in human history mm. um up next let's talk about the uh evolutionist school uh, one of the key individuals here edward b tylar that's t y l o r 1832 through 1917, English anthropologist. So he was a cultural evolutionist, and he saw myth as expression of primitive philosophy. So this is another example of myth as considered by individuals immersed in a specific discipline in in time. Uh, Evolutionary theory was changing the way we think about the world. On the Origin of Species by Darwin came out in 1859.
1: Mm. So... Oh, there's, there's another science mythological yeah, figure, indeed. Charles Darwin, indeed. an origin myth. I'm not sure which superhero he would yeah, be. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh you know, so, so some went in,
0: this, some individuals picked up on, on the evolution craze, and they went in decidedly racist and xenophobic directions mm-hmm. with this. Uh, but it's worth noting that, that, that Tylor at least believed that human minds had the same global capabilities, regardless of their position on what he saw as the, the ladder of cultural ascension. So he saw myth as an attempt to explain the world. Uh, again, getting back to the uh, itology that we were talking about earlier, he yeah. saw it as a proto-science. He also saw ritual as an application of myth, just as technology is an application of science yeah. to exert control. So myth is our understanding of how the world works, and ritual is our attempt to exploit that understanding for
1: control. Yeah, ritual is, in his sense, the application of how we're trying to control outcomes in a totally chaotic world that we don't know what's going to happen next, right? Yeah. If there's going to be a storm that's going to hit and kill my family, or maybe uh it won't rain and my crops won't grow. So I'm going to perform these rituals to try to make these particular things happen. I want to change the outcomes of reality.
0: Okay. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to try and like apply that to the previous theory. So you can imagine like this, this thing we see in the sky, we, we give it a certain amount of personality. And then as we yeah. reach out to it, as we, you know, at, at a loss of anything else, you know, amid say the the ruins of our village, we might uh, ask it for help mm-hmm. and then therefore personify it more and create more narrative energy for it. And this brings us to the myth as ritual school. And one of the key individuals here, Jane Ellen Harrison, 1850 through 1928, she was a British classical scholar, linguist, and feminist. Harrison expanded on this notion of ritual and myth as the, the spoken correlation of the acted right, the thing done. And, uh, and this reminds me of some of the views that we'll discuss from, uh, uh, uh Eliade in the mm-hmm. future here. And up next, we have the uh, ideological interpretation of Andrew Lang. He was a Scottish poet and anthropologist, lived 1844 through 1912.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, as we, we mentioned this earlier, but etiological means assigning or seeking to assign a cause to things. It's the study of causation in myth. In particular, we're talking about origin stories, right? How, yeah. how did this thing happen? Why is it happening?
0: Yeah, Lang wrote uh, wrote a book, Myth, Ritual, and Religion, Volume One, and uh, this is like a number of these older texts is available in full online if you just poke around for them. Um, but I wanted to read one uh, line from it to give you sort of a sense of some of the uh, some of the attitudes that were thrown around in trying to figure out what myth. Is and what its power is, mm. uh, and he's talking about uh, some Greek and uh, and Sanskrit uh, uh, writings about uh, about myth. Here he says, "quote We conclude that in Greek and Sanskrit the myths are relics, whether borrowed or inherited of
1: the savage mental status." Yeah. So now we're getting into, uh, oof, the, this is that period of time where I think like a lot of uh philosophical thought was struggling with what we now view as, I'd say, quasi-racist territory Yeah. Uh in terms of, like, you know, whether these theorists see themselves as being superior to, quote-unquote, primitive peoples, but then not exactly applying the same lens to themselves in terms of, like, how we understand culture and how we use myth, right? Yeah,
0: it's kind of like, let me, I guess, the, is there a term for this, like, white-splain you or... <laughs> Yeah, colonial explain You.
1: I mean, what I keep thinking of is, and I, and you see this in in a lot of these guys, is the idea of the quote noble savage, right? Yeah. Like the the idea that um particular primitive peoples have these two aspects to themselves, and once we crack the code, we can figure out what makes them tick, and it's it's um kind of grossly elitist. Yeah, it's it's like there's this beautiful thing about
0: your whole situation. You're blind to it, but yeah. I I am I am far enough up the ladder that I can uh, I can reach in there and figure it out for you exactly. Uh, yes. So yeah, there's sometimes you get into that that kind of icky area with some of these, uh, especially some of the earlier writings on mm-hmm. the subject. Um, up next, we're going to briefly discuss Franz Bose. He had this um, this interesting take that was that has been referred to by as autobiographical ethnography. All right, and that uh, that was a description that was. Uh, Uh, thrown out in that book I mentioned earlier by Anne Beryl um, about Chinese mythology. He was uh, a German-American anthropologist, lived uh, 1858 through 1942. And the basic idea here was that the specifics of a primitive culture can be deduced from kind of a post-mortem of its myths, Mm. Um, which, you know, sounds like, in a a sense, kind of an oversimplification. And maybe and that's probably an oversimplification of his work. Uh, But, you know, I can can see the value in it. Like, if you look at a person, at a people's mythology, then you're going to learn certain things about who and what they are.
1: Yeah, so uh, Boas is an interesting contrast to Lang, because I think both of them are in this sort of weird period of time where, like, intellectuals saw themselves as, like, defining, quote, primitive peoples, right? right. But at the same time, uh, if you look into Boas, like, he was pretty staunchly against what he called white prejudice and racial superiority, uh, and that he didn't think that it was, like, the job of anthropology to sort of apply that mindset to other peoples. But at the same time, like... The, there's it's complex, like I think it's too complex for us to get into in this right. episode, especially since we 're trying to tackle such a big subject to begin with. It might be worth returning to Boas in a future episode. But just this contradiction between like not wanting to, as we were <laughs> calling it, like white splain, uh, uh, d- to these particular peoples. But then at the same time, like uh, uh, saying like, Oh yeah, I-, I get you figured out. Like one- once I look at your rituals and your myths, like I-, I know what's going on here.
0: Yeah, Yeah. It is difficult because on the other hand, you have individuals in a different culture with a different language trying to understand individuals in another culture in a different language and Mm. speaking about it within their own culture, within their own language, within their own disciplines. And yeah, it gets, uh, it gets complicated pretty
1: quickly. There's something going on here too, about using myth to understand the world that also leads us to our fear of other people in like different ways of which we can try to apply that and make sense of it. Uh, and I think you see a little bit of that here, but Boas was obviously trying to, uh, push against it. All right, up next we have Polish anthropologist Bronislaw
0: Malinowski, uh, lived 1884 through 1942. And uh, his whole thing was that, that myth is a sociological charter. So in other words, if you want to know what's morally acceptable within a society, look to their myths, which end up reflecting and informing these standards. They spell out the important values, the rituals, the behavior. Um, uh, Claude Levi-Strauss, who we're going to get to in a second, described this as... Myth is a charter for social action. And then Levi Strauss expanded on this view uh, with a, a structural analytical approach that highlights the binary oppositions in myth that bring the reader, listener, the individual to a place of deeper meaning. So you're kind of narratively juggling the notions of social action in a way that a, a mere you know a mere set of rules carved in a piece of stone cannot.
1: Yeah. Levi Strauss is one of sort of the you know, first major thinkers in the last century to do that uh, language application thing here. Mm-hmm. And in particular, he's considered a father of structuralism, which we've talked about recently on the show. Yeah. And some people have asked us to please do an episode on structuralism or post-structuralism. I, we might. It, it's such an incredibly complex uh. Theory that Mm -hmm. I don't know that we could do justice to it.
0: Well sometimes what you have to do is just sort of dip your toes in it, right? Yeah, maybe we'll do do that.
1: Uh, But in the case of Strauss, he wrote a four-volume study called Mythologies. Uh, and and the, the idea here was that he followed a single myth as it uh, traversed from South America all the way up to the Arctic Circle, sort of like how we are tracing the origins of cannabis in, in that right. episode a couple weeks ago. Right. So he's tracing its cultural evolution. Uh, and in particular, he has an essay. He has multiple things he's written about this, but there's a, a widely read essay that is free on the Internet. If you just Google it, the structural study of myth in which he says uh, and keep in mind, this is 60 years ago. Myths are interpreted in conflict conflicting ways. Right. So he's looking at all the different ways that all these other theorists are trying to interpret them, whether it's through collective dreams or ritual or play or archetypes, all these things that we're, we're, we've either talked about already, or we will talk about none of them, uh, go beyond what he calls quote, a crude kind of philosophic speculation. So he kind of looked down on them. Right. But then like any good academic, he was like, well, I have the one single answer and here it <laughs> is. Um, He says, well, the paradox is that myth is both full of elements that contradict one another, right? Anything can happen in a myth. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, between different cultures in different regions that seemingly haven't interacted at all, there's similarities between their myths. Uh, And one of the examples he uses is the Native American trickster myth. Uh, as an example, he says, well, uh, it, it's, a, it's a meditation on both life and death, right? And it's a, it's symbolized by both like a raven, and I, I think it's either a coyote or a wolf. Uh, and those seem like they would be diametrically opposed, but they're not, and here's why. And I, I'm not going to dive down the whole Levi Strauss thing, but you can take a look. It's, it's really interesting stuff. Um, he also used Oedipus as an example, and he said, since myth is made of language uh, and it can't be told without human speech, this is why we need to apply linguistics and structuralism to it in order to understand it. He takes Oedipus and he breaks it apart kind of like a musical arrangement, like an orchestral st- a score with uh, assigned beats to it. And he breaks up those beats into four columns. Uh, and through this... He tries to discern what a myth actually means, right? And what that mean, uh, meaning, the etiological nature of that meaning, uh, by finding that the fourth column is the universal characteristic of man. Okay. So this is like his, his, uh, prime answer to what's going on with myth. Uh, and in particular, he also said there isn't one authentic version of a myth, but there's different manifestations hmm. and we see this throughout yeah. all of them. Right. So uh, even like in the examples of like that, I've been giving modern day superheroes as being sort of mythic, right? Like their continuity is constantly changing and, and it's, yeah, it's you're talking about flux.
0: Superman, the sun God or Superman, yeah. the Reagan esque uh, figure in uh, what the dark night returns. Yeah, it,
1: yeah, title? exactly. Yeah. Right. So like they're interpreted in different ways and applied in different ways. So he's like, He he was trying to figure out what the fundamental units of myths were, and he Mm -hmm. called them mythemes, which I like because if you split it, it's my theme. (laughs) Um, And uh, I believe this was before the uh, conceptualization of memes, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, But there's there's something connected there as well. Uh, He tried breaking them down in this very strict structuralist linguistic manner to find out what those fundamental units were. And he thought that there had to be some kind of universal law to all of them. All
0: right. So we have some good material here. We've we've already rolled through a number of different ways to take apart the myth and figure out what it means. So let's talk about Sigmund Freud just a little bit. Yes, Robert. Tell me about your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So Freud is mostly uh, known for, for psychoanalysis. But of course... Myth was also hugely important to him. He would keep all these these different uh uh you know mythic depictions of gods uh, just sitting around his office, and he saw myths as reflections of our unconscious fears and desires. So, he viewed ancient religious characters as the manifestations of submerged human desires, and therefore all religions is kind of a mass delusion or maybe a paranoid form of wish fulfillment. So and this is where we get our Oedipal complex and our Electra complex from. Exactly. And so the idea here is that in these religious figures, you could find the universal truths of the human condition. The Oedipus one, of course, is probably the big one, probably the most well-known one. The, the classic example uh, drawn from the, the, the actual myth here of Oedipus Rex, mythical Greek king, He's a solver of riddles that have to do with the human condition. So, uh, you know, Freud dug that, but also uh, the myth underlies the edifice complex—the idea that on—and I'm, I'm and I'm summarizing super here, super paraphrasing, yeah, yeah, super paraphrasing. <laughs> but that um, this is like the dime store understanding of it. But that all children want to kill their father and marry their mother
1: yeah it's the uh jim morrison version right
0: (laughs) so that that's that's kind of uh freud's uh, contribution in a nutshell to our understanding of myth
1: yeah uh and then freud's contemporary and you know sometime rival carl jung Mm -hmm. uh had a psychological explanation for everything all these guys man everybody's coming up with their universal laws i've got it figured out no i've got it figured out here's my universal law uh, it, Willem Reich, who we talked about on a previous episode, spun out of these two guys as well with his universal law of how everything worked out. Uh, so young, he's all about collective unconsciousness in particular archetypal patterns of thoughts and symbolism. He thought that myths were projections of cl- the collective unconsciousness that we all share. Uh, and again, like super dime store version of this is that there's like this, uh, shared imaginary space between all of us and that we're all pulling our ideas from and it's it's natural to humans, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can't quite define it but uh, we're all pulling from that same space no matter where we are in the world and this seems to explain why all these myths from varied locations are so similar. So Jung argues well, like deities for example in mythology, those are expressions of these universal archetypes uh, and so what's been done with Jung's work is the psychological archetypes that he came up with are applied in a certain kind of literary criticism. Uh, and you can pretty much apply it to any story, right? Uh, it's usually very basic. Uh, one of my uh, former advisors in grad school would refer to it as the model fits kind of study, right, where right. you're just you're taking his model and you apply it to a text and you go, yep. That works. Uh, and that's, you know, for for a lot of people, that's good enough. For some people, they want more meat on the bone. Uh But a lot of the Jungian criticism is done as such. So, right. We've got examples like the hero, the anima and the animus, the mother, the father, the child, the sage, the trickster uh the fool, right? There these are all archetypes that show up in, in many of our texts, whether they're literary, mythological, or or superhero movies, right? Yeah. Uh, a really good example, I think, of how Jungian archetypes are applied in world building in like a fictional setting is Game of Thrones. Like yeah, that's yeah. like reverse-engineered uh mythology there, right? In that like George R. R. Martin like clearly it, it, he had either looked at this or other archetypal versions of mythology and said, okay, well, when I create my re, uh, religion in this world, right, like, we've got a, a god of light. And then the seven, there's, like, what? There's, like, maiden, mother, and crone. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah and then there's the, the stranger. The stranger. The, the sonification. And I would imagine the stranger lines up pretty well with Jung's version of the shadow. Yeah. And the shadow is this immoral remnant of our instinctual animal past. So it's sort of like this weird, like dark side of ourselves that we don't want to admit to, but it's always with us. It's always following us, right? Mm. Like our shadows do. Um, and so, yeah, you can take this and you can plop it on top of like almost any story and map it out and it works. Uh, and in the same way you can do that with Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, which is another very popularized sort of explanation of mythology in the last what? 50 years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's become synonymous with Star Wars, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so Campbell is renowned today as a pop mythologist. Uh, and it's similar to, uh, th- there's way more to it than this. I, 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 we're really just diving in the shallow end here. Uh, if you're interested in this, I, I highly recommend you go out and read more about these, these theorists and these thinkers, but yeah, we're providing you with the IKEA toolkit. If you, if you <laughs> want a, yeah. if you want a real Alan Wrench, uh,
0: for for extended use, uh, there's a, there's a different toolkit out there for you. We're just giving you the uh,
1: you know a, a good overview. Campbell basically argues that like almost every story ha- uh, follows this formula that he calls the hero's journey, and it plays out. And Star Wars is the one that everybody uses as an <laughs> example for this, not only because it fits it perfectly, but also because George Lucas himself claimed, "Oh yeah, I was influenced by Joseph Campbell, and I intentionally did all that stuff." Uh, so he claims that he intentionally applied this three-act structure that breaks down into 17 sub-acts. Uh, and I'm not gonna go through the whole thing here, but you, you know, if you're familiar with sort of just like generic, uh, film storytelling, it's gonna be very familiar to you in the way that like, you know, stories have rises and arcs, there's calls to adventures, uh, there's particular challenges that they have to go through and then they have to return with something. And in, in this particular uh, uh, Joseph Campbell formula, he always says that you have to the, the, the hero has to refuse to return back to the real world. But then they eventually do on some kind of magical flight. Uh, it's, it's interesting. And when you again. The model fits. You lay this on top of Star Wars and it works out perfectly. And even even more interesting, like you lay it on top of A New Hope and it works perfectly. And then if you lay it on, on top of like all of the movies as well, the arc still works out. Yeah. So, okay, I tend to believe George Lucas that he looked to this quasi-academic for, you know, uh, a, a narrative application. I, I don't know about you, but like when I've uh, written fiction before in the past, I've actually tried to play around with Campbell's uh formula
0: yeah i have at times uh dipped into it uh for sure because i mean yeah i mean you have this uh, ultimately which is a great universal narrative arc to and on which to follow a mythic character so yeah. it's it's hard not to be inspired by it or at least to look at it and say all right was this idea that i was
1: thinking of how do, how well does that match up with the yeah the blueprint here for me it was like it was along the lines of like okay Am I sticking to this blueprint? Alright, like, how do I break that a little bit? Yeah. So that it's something that's, the story isn't, uh, so expected. Exactly,
0: right? yeah. Alright, so next uh, we're gonna discuss, uh, Mercedes Eliade, who we uh, mentioned earlier. Um, and, uh, he was influenced by myth as ritual school of thought, as well as Jungian uh, archetype concepts. He recognized the ideological aspects of myth, but he saw it as a vital link between ancient sacred past and the modern profane present. So imagine this bridge, or even a like a a, a time portal between our modern linear experience and its inherent uh, terror of history, which is a big deal for him. The idea that, you know, in in, in brief, that since we are experiencing time as this linear progression, mm-hmm. it's all the more horrifying when we realize, oh, well, we as, as, a, as a species keep making the same mistakes over and over again, and yep. we're never going to get them fixed. Uh, that makes more sense in a cyclical mindset, which you would have had in the in the ancient past. So. Imagine this portal connects our modern world to an age in which sacred time is cyclical. This means that the meaning of life is in the circle of things. And in this ancient age, people are one with the cosmos and the, the cosmic rhythms. Uh, while modern humans, according to Iliade, they're connected only with history. So myth is the portal. Myth is the, that bridge that, that brings these two worlds together. Plus, he also gets into some of the other ideas we've discussed here. I just want to read a quick quote from... Uh, his uh, his excellent book um the myth of the eternal return myth is a history that can be repeated indefinitely in the sense that the myths serve as models for ceremonies and periodically reactualize the tremendous events that occurred at the beginning of time the myths preserve and transmit the paradigms the exemplary models for all the responsible activities in which men engage by virtue of these paradynamic models revealed to men in mythical times, the cosmos and society are
1: periodically regenerated. So uh, I, my encapsulation of that would be like the the Battlestar Galactica version of all this has happened and it will happen again. Right. That kind of thing.
0: Yeah. You could summarize it as saying that this linear experience of reality, it works for us, but it's missing something and uh, when the terror of history begins to creep in it's good to reconnect to jump in that portal and reconnect with the sacred
1: experience of reality well that's an interesting segue into um two guys who i feel like we have to mention here they're again uh con- connected to the sort of linguistic aspect but they're also uh sort of along the lines of Mar- marxist philosophical thinking uh Roland Bart is the first one, and he is infamous for having written a book called Mythologies. Uh, and, uh, man, I, there's one chapter in there that I really think that you would love. Uh, Mythologies is actually more about messages and media than it is about myths, per se. But he's using Levi Strauss's same linguistic analysis and structuralism to apply a Marxist approach to myth, and in particular, media. So he's writing this in the 50s, late 50s as the rise of mass media is coming on. Uh, and he interprets media with linguistic terms, applying them to socio-political analysis. Uh, I, so I, I think it'd be fair to say like, without Bart, there would be like no Noam Chomsky. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so he, he does this and it's interesting, he finds that most of our modern myths are created by a ruling class through media. Okay. Now, again, again, like I'm not going to dive deep down that rabbit hole and make those arguments or, or, or argue with them, but there's a section in there that's all about wrestling. Uh, and it's, uh, one of the first sort of like pro wrestling, right? Uh, well, they didn't really have pro wrestling, but Mm -hmm. they had that sort of narrative wrestling at the time that you could still go watch. It's one of the first sort of revelations of what we now call kayfabe Mm -hmm. that I've, uh, ever heard or read on the sport. Uh, and he basically says, look, They're pantomiming the archetypes of myth in every single fight. And these are direct quotes from uh, the book. He says, the function of the wrestler is not to win. It is to go through the motions that are expected of him. In the same way uh, as Iliad's like, you know, history is repeating itself. We watch the wrestling match. We have expectations of what will or will not happen. And we experience pleasure by seeing this enacted. And he says that it's enacted through three archetypical acts, suffering, suffering, Defeat injustice. Huh. Uh, and it's fascinating. I actually in grad school went to school with a guy who, uh, took this and ran with it and wrote his dissertation all about modern day wrestling and mythology. Oh, cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of myth in it. You see it less, I guess, in the sort of modern, um, American models. Yeah. But if you look to, especially if you look to the more traditional modes of lucha libre in Mexico, yeah. you see like straight up, like by the, by the books, um, mythological representations in many cases to the to the point where sometimes American viewers look at it and they're like, well, I don't understand. Like, I knew that this good the good guy was going to win. I knew that the the uh, the technico was going to defeat the Rudo and it played out exactly like I expected. There was no surprise. That's, that's kind the of the point. point. Yeah, if yeah, that's the myth. This is myth reenacted in the ring for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so then there's also Frederick Jameson, and again, disservice, like, I, this is gonna be a very, like, bare bones Jameson thing, but Jameson argues that myths actually attempt to disintegrate history right. rather than repeat history by emptying history out of what their original meanings were and replace them with a narrative that seems like it's always been that way. So my example uh, from comic books would be so comics had the comics code that tried to boutlerize and regulate and ignore entire aspects of American life for decades, right? Like sex and profanity were just completely cut out of comic mm-hmm. book stories. So you had these superhero mythologies without any of, uh, like re- the real world that they were trying to explain within them. And these mythologies were pretending like that wasn't an aspect of the American community and acted like it had always been that way, right? Huh. Uh, so it's an interesting sort of take on it that like we're constantly revising history in the same way that we're constantly revising our mythologies. And again, like I come back to these, these scientist examples, right? Like we think of Einstein and our Einstein that we talk about and revere is kind of a fictional Einstein, right? Yeah. And this also brings to mind the earlier example of
0: myth as a, as a moral, uh, instructional tool. Yeah. So yeah, you're changing, you're, you're changing the comic book mythos and then using it as a way to, or an attempt to say hey this is how you live mm-hmm. this is there's there's no well there is sex but uh sure. but you're trying to make a moral but statement in the morality of the readers
1: yeah so the last one that i wanted to throw in there and in particular because the the thesis that I wrote when I was in grad school was all about Captain America and mythological applications to ideology and rhetoric. Uh, there's these guys, Robert Jewett and John Chilton Lawrence, and they've written multiple books about something they call the American monomyth. And they've argued that Captain America as a character is indicative of this monomyth. Uh, they define it as an anti-democratic fantasy where a super-powered everyman saves society by stepping outside of institutions to violently punish villains. Oh. And there's more to it than that. I mean, these guys have written books and books and books on this, but... Look at the last three Captain America movies. That's pretty much what it is, right? Uh, Captain America, even though he's an embodiment of America, he's always stepping outside of whatever institution he's part of, right? If he's part of the military, he has to do something without them. If he's part of S.H.I.E.L.D., he has to reveal that S.H.I.E.L.D. has been co-opted by HYDRA or whatever. If he's a part of the Avengers, he has to step outside of the Avengers to set things right. He's kind of like this ideal for what... The system should be, but is not. Yeah, yeah, in a way, but it's also like incredibly violent and sort of fascistic as well. <laughs> Uh, and so he's demonstrative of this so much that they call it the Captain America complex. And much like with Young and his archetypes, you can apply the Captain America complex to a lot of pop culture examples and find that exact formula playing out. Especially, I find in a lot of our, like, 80s action movies, uh the Captain America complex is pretty prevalent, like Lethal Weapon or Total Recall, uh yeah. the, the stuff like that. Like, it's always you know, some strong badass who has to step outside of uh, authority to get things done, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's interesting. They argue that it permeates not only our media, but our political language as well. And I would say, look at Donald Trump's campaign right now. That's why a lot yeah. of people are attracted to it uh, is because he steps outside of the institutions, right? Or at least he claims to to save society by punishing the wicked. I do want to say, though, like, while I think that there's something to this, their evidence is only from like a few scattered uh sources, of, at least in the Captain America case. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I wrote the thesis I did, because I wanted to cover like the s- 70 years of American history that sort of goes on during the Captain America continuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing that's interesting with Captain America in particular, and I wonder if we're going to see this show up in these Marvel movies pretty soon, is he goes through these cycles where he's all of a sudden apathetic about everything. Uh, and in particular, he gives up his role as a national symbol because he no longer believes in the myths that define the nation that he believes in, right? Mm -hmm. So he, like, there's a, the first big example of this is in the early 70s. There's this... uh, Captain America story that's crazy, where it, like, it turns out like the big villain behind everything is the President of the United States. Captain America storms into the Oval Office, confronts him, and the, and the President of the United States shoots himself in the face. Oh. And so after that, Captain America's like, ah, oh, America, I don't believe in this fantasy anymore. I am no longer Captain America. And he discards his costume and his shield. Does he move to Canada? Does he join Alpha Flight? No, he becomes a biker. Oh. And he calls himself the Nomad and rides around on a bike and and is a vigilante that way, and then like eventually finds his faith in America again. Then it happens again in the eighties. It happened uh in the two thousands as well. Huh. Like this is like this recurring storyline with Captain America.
0: Interesting, and kind of from a uh, Christian perspective, like kind of like a harrowing of hell, maybe even you know, mm-hmm. this idea that even the great Savior has to. Fall and descend and then rise.
1: Oh yeah, and it's, and the the, the hellish thing about it too is right, like he's never allowed to die or retire. Mm -hmm. Like every time like you think Captain America's dead or he gets old or something and they replace him with a new guy, he inevitably comes back. It just happened like two, three weeks ago in the comics again. Like he'd been replaced by someone and then he had, he had turned really old. He was like 90 years old and then, you know, some science fiction-y thing happened and he's back. But yeah, he's going to have to go through the whole cycle over again. All right. Well, um,
0: you know, I just want to close out by mentioning William G. Dotty, Again, he's that religious studies scholar and mythologist. Um, he summarized a lot of what we've talked, we've talked about in this episode in what is, in my opinion, a highly effective kind of eightfold view. So he said that, and, and I'm just going to roll them out here for you. Number one, myth as is an aesthetic device. It is narrative literature. Okay. Mm-hmm. Myth is a tale of gods and other worlds. That's number two. Number three is myths explain our origins. Number four is that myth is essentially mistaken or primitive science. Number five is that myth is a text for a rite mm-hmm. or a ritual. That application again. Yeah. Yeah. Number six is that myth is a means to make universal ideas or truths concrete and intelligible for the average consumer. Uh, number seven, myths are all about um, explicating beliefs, collective experiences or values. And number eight, myths constitute spiritual or psychic uh, expression.
1: Mm, so that that would play out well with both like the sacred nature of myth, but then also Young's uh, collective Unconsciousness, which is sort of an, a psychic expression in a way.
0: Yeah, and I think the big take home, and one of the reasons I like uh, like this approach, is that that I I feel like a lot of us can agree that myths are polyfunctional. You mm-hmm. know, they mm-hmm. have they have various functions that they're carrying out at the same time, sometimes to the same consumer, uh, to the same you know the same person that's listening to, viewing or hearing the myth, or just yeah. thinking about it in the back of their mind. Uh, again, it's this. It's this weird thing because that we're all living in the shadow of myth and we're casting the shadow of myth. Um, we, we may not think that, that myths play a big role in our lives, but regardless if we're talking about the Greek gods, uh, you know, the, the, the Old Testament or just the, the pages of your favorite comic book, mm-hmm. those, uh, those, the, that mythic energy is very much in play in our world.
1: Yeah. I think if any lesson, we can take from like this overview of all of these ideas about mythology. It's that there's no one universal law. Like a lot of these thinkers tried to say, I've figured it out. This is the key to the Mm -hmm. universe. And the key to the universe is figuring out how these stories about what the key to the universe is work. Right. Yeah. Uh, And in a way they're creating their own mythologies, but there are applications that you can, you can dip into from, from many of these things and pull them out and think about uh, anything really in modern-day settings, whether it's science, politics, pop culture, and you apply those and you can sort of pull out the strings and go, oh, wait a minute. This is like the sort of behind the scenes of how society works, right? Or or at least how we're trying to make sense of the world still. We're still looking up at the sun and the moon and the planets and nature and the seasons and going, I don't really know how this whole thing works. (laughs) But this answer, this is the answer I'm going to go by. And if I'm going to try to control it, I'm going to perform these rituals and everything will be fine.
0: I'm going to see what Batman has to say about it. Yeah. And then I'm going to touch back in with my uh,
1: my normal linear life. Absolutely. Yeah. I trust Batman every day over <laughs> Carl Sagan. <laughs> All right.
0: All right. Well, there you have it uh, again. We're just hoping to provide you with some tools, with some different perspectives on myth in your life, in your world, in the things that you consume uh, we'd love to hear back from all of you on this topic. Uh, how does myth factor into your life? How do, how do these different ways of looking at myth factor into your belief systems and your culture,
1: et cetera? Yeah. And going forward too, as we cover, you know, we dive back into more sciencey topics as we continue with the show, you know, now we've got sort of a foundational framework for myth when it comes up again, when we're talking about crazy space satellites or, uh, tiny bone worms that devour whales at the bottom of the ocean. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, this is a, a nice way for us to have a framework. You know, it, as you're listening and and myth pops up in your head again for a future episode as well, please let us know. Uh, let's synthesize some of this information together and learn together from it. The ways to talk to us about those things are social media. Now you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Tumblr and you can find us on Instagram. We're uh blow the mind on all of those. Uh And just to reiterate, I say this on every episode, I think, but, uh, we don't just like post the podcast there and that's it. Like we talk about what w- what we're working on outside of the podcast, whether it's writing or videos. We also share all this totally bizarre science and news information mm-hmm. that we come across in our weekly uh, endeavors. That's
0: right. And be sure to check out stufftoblowyourmind dot com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, uh, including the landing page for this this one, uh, which will include some links out to related content and perhaps some outside material as well. And hey, wherever you listen to us, if there is a way to rate us and review us, uh, do so. Give us some some positive yeah. feedback. Give us some high ratings. That helps the show. That helps the various algorithms in play and is a great yeah. way
1: to support the show we're without on a, spending any money. We're on a bunch of new platforms now. So uh, any any way that you can help us kind of get a leg up uh, so more people will listen to it would be much appreciated. We're on iTunes, we're on Google Play, and it's Spotify.
0: And as always, you can shoot us an email. Get, us, get in touch with us the old-fashioned way at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.